Our scripture reading this morning is Matthew 5, 14 through 16. Michael Millette will be reading for us. In honor of God's word, let's stand together. Listen as I read. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, so we are in a series on, on, uh, on our doctrine, and uh, it is titled, We Believe, and we only have one more, uh, one more Sunday in this series, and so today is the, uh, the second to last, and uh, we are looking at a section of our doctrinal statement uh, that called the Kingdom uh, of God, and, and the reason why we're walking through our doctrinal statement is, in part, we, we, we believe that doctrine matters. Uh, we've said this quote a bunch of the weeks, but one writer put it this way, what we believe matters, what we believe about God matters most. And so doctrine is uh, an effort to take the teaching of the Bible and to summarize it, uh, to put it into, uh, into summary statements. And so when you look at our church's doctrinal statement, uh, our church's doctrinal statement is not inspired. Uh, our doctrinal statement is not the Bible. Our, our doctrinal statement is an effort uh, to summarize what we believe the Bible teaches. Uh, our doctrinal statement is standing on the shoulders of a lot of theologians uh, from a lot of continents and a lot of uh, generations, a lot of eras. And, uh, and so we are super thankful for the way that God has been at work uh, in his people, especially over the last 2,000 years, uh, as there has been a, a collective effort of, of the Christian church to try. Uh, it has spent an incredible amount of time and energy uh, trying to distill the teachings uh, of the Bible. And so uh, it's been a fun series. I hope you've uh, been able to be here for many of them, uh, but they are all online uh, if, if you miss some. So today is the kingdom of God, and like, uh, like the other weeks, uh, we are going to read uh, our doctrinal statement. Uh, this week's is a little bit longer than normal, and so it should be in the bulletin that you received if you want to open that up, or it'll be on the screen, uh, screen behind me. The kingdom of God. We believe that those who have been saved by the grace of God through union with Christ by faith and through regeneration by the Spirit, Holy Spirit enter the kingdom of God and delight in the blessings of the new covenant, the forgiveness of sins, the inward transformation that awakens a desire to glorify, trust, and obey God, and the prospect of the glory yet to be revealed. Good works constitute indispensable evidence of saving grace. Living as salt in the world that is decaying and light in a world that is dark Believers should neither withdraw into seclusion from the world, nor become indistinguishable from it. Rather, we are to do good to the city, for all the glory and honor of the nations is to be offered up to the living God. Recognizing whose created order this is, and because we are citizens of God's kingdom, we are to love our neighbors as ourselves, doing good to all, especially to those who belong to the household of God. The kingdom of God, already present but not fully realized, is the exercise of God's sovereignty in the world toward the eventual redemption of all creation. The kingdom of God is an invasive power that plunders Satan's dark kingdom 
and regenerates and renovates through repentance and faith the lives of individuals rescued from that kingdom. It therefore inevitably establishes a new community of human life together under God. And so that is quite the snapshot and quite the picture of what God is doing uh, in the world. Uh, Next week, as we finish this series, uh, we're going to actually have the opportunity on Easter Sunday to look at at, at God's, uh, the renewal of all things. And so um, we'll be talking about some of those dynamics that we just read about. We'll be talking about some of them uh, again next week. So for for this week, I want to start off talking specifically about the kingdom of God. Uh, The scripture passage that we had read was just a couple verses from Matthew chapter 5. And that is part of a a sermon. Uh, It's part of a sermon that Jesus preached that we know as the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, it is a fabulous sermon. It's an incredible sermon. It's, it's three chapters long. And, uh, and, and many people rightly understand that sermon as a declaration of kingdom values, uh, of Jesus casting a vision for what it's like to be in his kingdom, for what it's like to be part of what he is doing in the world. Our, our doctrinal statement says that the kingdom of God is the exercise of God's sovereignty in all of creation. Uh, The kingdom of God is called different things. It's called kingdom of heaven, kingdom of Christ, kingdom of the Lord. And sometimes in the Bible, it's just referred to simply as the kingdom. Um, And and the Sermon on the Mount is is kind of helping us understand it. Like, what what does this kingdom look like? How how does it play out uh, in the world? Well, the kingdom of God, God's rule and his reign in the world, is a primary, and maybe you could make the case that it is the primary theme of the Bible. It is the story of what God is doing on earth. This this idea of a kingdom, of the kingdom of God, it just shows up so pervasively throughout the Bible. There's this movement towards God bringing his kingdom to bear. But there are uh, a few problems that we often run into with the kingdom of God. And uh, at least two of them I want to point to uh, right now. Uh, One of them is that there's a lot of people... Uh, who want the kingdom without the king. Uh, There's a a lot of beautiful things uh, about the kingdom uh, of God. Um, You know, just some of them that we referenced in our statement, some of them, if you're familiar with the the Sermon on the Mount, the idea of loving your neighbor, um, the golden rule, treat others the way you want to be treated, uh, giving to those in need, loving your enemy, not retaliating, those things, are all, those things are all things that, generally speaking, our culture is a big fan of. We like that picture of a kingdom like that, a kingdom that's full of peace, a kingdom where justice rules, a kingdom where everything is right. We, we like the idea of the kingdom, but another thought that often shows up is, but do we really need a king? Like, I love the kingdom, but do we really need a king? You know, if, if you haven't noticed, uh, our culture has a problem with authority. <laughs> um, and, and the idea of a king brings up all kinds of interesting uh, reactions. And uh, I don't want to just beat up our culture, because the truth of the matter is that humanity has struggled with authority all along the way. Uh, as we have referenced several times in this series, uh, the first few chapters of the Bible, by the time you get to Genesis chapter 3, what do you realize? 
you realize that here are Adam and Eve living in perfect communion with God. And instead of obeying God, instead of trusting his good way, they throw off his good way and they want to do their own thing. Is all they needed was a little whisper that said, God's keeping good stuff from you. The good stuff is over there and he won't let you have it. That's all they needed was just a little whisper. And they bailed on God's good design. They bailed on their one true king and they followed after their own desires. Uh, in Psalm, uh, the second Psalm, Psalm 2, uh, I, I, I preached on that Psalm before, and there's this real simple little outline. And the outline is, we have a king, we hate the king, but we need the king. And there's just this recognition in Psalm 2 where it's like the nations just rage against the one true king. The nations rage against God's, uh, God's sovereign uh, rule over the earth. And we're part of that. We have this, uh, this, this, this drive inside of us to push against authority. And when we hear ideas that God is the ultimate authority, that God has that kind of power, it bothers us. And we often like the kingdom, but we kind of want it without the king. And yet the Bible says there can be no kingdom. The kingdom doesn't exist without the king. He's the one who brings it. He's the one who brings that to bear. You want that kind of a world? I do too. We got to have a king that brings it. And Jesus is that king. Second uh, problem uh, that we'll touch on today is that the kingdom is so often misunderstood. And I think one of the reasons why it's misunderstood is it is really complex um, if, if you were given a blank piece of paper when you walked in here and said, write down what you think the kingdom of God is, my guess is we would have a lot of different answers. And so here, here's some summary ideas of what the Bible says the kingdom of God is. It tells us that the kingdom, so it's complex. It tells us that the kingdom of God is both present and future. The Bible tells us that the kingdom of God is both spiritual and physical, and sometimes we see one side emphasized to the neglect of others. You see some people who have a vision of the kingdom of God that is future and spiritual, and it feels like it's this thing that they can't really define, but it's, it's out there, and it's not really something that bears on their life right now, but they really want God to bring that someday. And so it's, like, it's almost like a, something that doesn't really enter their thinking. And then others uh, maybe think that it's their job to bring the kingdom. And so they are, they're working with all of their might, not just for the good of others, but to bring the kingdom. See, the, the, the kingdom of, co- of God calls for both social engagement and it calls for personal conversion. So it calls for us to engage our neighbors, to love our neighbors, but it also calls upon my own heart, my own life to respond to this news of a king. And sometimes maybe you've run into people who are all about personal conversion and what they're doing is they're trying to get you to, to sign the dotted line. They're trying to get you to commit your life to Jesus. And that is a necessary thing. That is a good thing. It's something that the Bible calls upon us to repent and turn in faith to our Lord and, Je- uh, Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But it also calls us to social engagement. And maybe you know some people who are all about social engagement, but it's kind of like they've left the gospel off to the side. And it's almost like, yeah, we don't need to tell everybody about their problems and their sin. They have enough problems. Let's get them some food. Let's get them some money. Well, guess what? The Bible calls for social engagement too. The kingdom of God calls us into social engagement. It is a picture of how God's people live among the nations, live among our neighbors. 
And so the kingdom of God calls for both social engagement and personal conversion. The kingdom of God also calls for both grace, grace to others, to, to, show, to show mercy to others, to actually look at other people who are struggling and failing and to have grace to them, towards them. But it also calls upon us to have holy lives. And maybe you've been in either one of these ditches where you think that if you show grace to someone, then, oh man, they'll just take, a, you know, give them an inch, they'll take a mile. You show grace and watch what they're going to do. They're just going to do anything they want. Can't show grace. We've got to, got to you know, hold the line. And then other people might have this idea of like, if I'm going to show grace, then I shouldn't judge. If I'm going to show grace, then we shouldn't say something's right or wrong. And the kingdom of God invites us into both of those dynamics. It actually is revealing to us that those things don't conflict with each other. That we can pursue a holy life, a life where, where what God says is right and wrong is what we say is right and wrong. And at the same time, we actually show grace to other people. Those can live simultaneously in the kingdom of God. And so we get confused about the kingdom because the kingdom is complex. It's doing multiple things at once. And most of us, you know, we have a hard time like chewing gum and walking. And so it's like when the kingdom of God is, is this big and this beautiful, we can kind of get sideways. Uh, one other thing that causes some misunderstanding is that the kingdom of God is already initiated but it is not yet here in full. So maybe you're familiar with the phrase, already, not yet. The kingdom of God is already, not yet. If you uh, read the Gospel of Mark, Jesus' first public words in the Gospel of Mark are kingdom words. He says, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus came uh, about 2,000 years ago, and when he showed up, it was the beginning of his kingdom on earth. It was a foretaste of this coming uh, reality. Uh, the Bible refers to this as, as the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, where what Jesus was going to bring was this, this new chapter where hearts, were gonna, uh, hearts of stone were going to be turned to hearts of flesh, where we would actually be able to know God in a more intimate, personal relationship. It wasn't just about doing things or obeying. It was actually about knowing God and being in right relationship with him. But that covenant, as rich and as beautiful as it is, it's only partially realized right now. So Jesus brought that kingdom. It's already here, but not yet in full. There is a day coming when Jesus who rode a horse into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Today's Palm Sunday. You know, Jesus rode a horse into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday almost 2,000 years ago. The Bible says he's going to come again and he's going to ride another horse. And in the book of Revelation, we are told that King Jesus is coming back and he's going to ride a, a white horse and he's going to be called Faithful and True. And at that moment, he is going to bring his kingdom in full. And so what he started with his first coming, he is going to finish. So it's here to a degree, but it's not here in full. But when he comes again, when he rides the horse a second time, when he shows up and we recognize him as faithful and true, that will be the long-awaited eternal kingdom in full. And we cannot wait for that day. The kingdom of God will only be fully realized when Jesus returns. And I don't want to get off on a, on a big side uh, 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 rabbit trail with this, but we can't bring the kingdom. 
we're invited into being part of what Jesus is doing in the world. Uh, one, of, one, of my, uh, one of my favorite phrases is this, that we, we get to be part of Jesus' putting it right project. So wherever we see hurting, we jump in and we get to be part of it. Wherever we see suffering, we get to jump in and be part of it. But all of our efforts can't bring the kingdom. Only Jesus can bring the kingdom in full. Only he can finish the work. And the Bible says that day's coming. Isaiah 60 paints a picture of it. Revelation 21, Revelation 22. That day is coming. And I can't wait. We're going to get to talk more about that uh, next week. Well, what about in the meantime? So I said the kingdom is already here, but not yet in full. So what does it look like to be the people of God and in a sense live in a partial kingdom? Well, here's what the Bible has to say. You know, we, we often say here that the gospel is not advice, that the gospel is news. It's something that is true. It's something that's historical. It's news. And if you look back at our doctrinal statement, uh, the first paragraph here uh, the first paragraph of our doctrinal statement addresses what responding in faith to this news of the gospel does. It, it, it reveals there in that first chapter, it, it, it brings forgiveness. It brings spiritual life. It, it opens us up to this reality of a right relationship with God. And so we recognize that the gospel is not advice. The gospel is news. And so it brings us to life. It takes a heart that is dead and makes it alive. It takes hearts that are stone and turns them into hearts of flesh. So what I want us to think about now is, what if that's happened to you? What if you've actually believed the gospel? What if you've actually been made alive? What if you've been made new? How do you live now? Well, in the last three paragraphs of this doctrinal statement, there's, there's an effort to, to flesh that out. There's an effort to, to, to reveal it to us. And so the first sentence of the second paragraph says, good works constitute indispensable evidence of saving grace. And so there's this, this invitation, this recognition that being made alive in Jesus results in a certain way of living your life, of an actual demonstration of an inward reality. So, you could say that we take part in the kingdom of God by living, as our statement says, salt and light, or as light in our city. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16, that's what Jesus says. He says, you are the light of the world. You are a city set on a hill, cannot be hidden. Let your light shine. Show, show the world. In verse 16, uh, in verse 15, nor do people put a lamp under the basket, but on a stand, where am I looking? Verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So as they see your good works, they associate that with who your dad is, with who, who your father is, with what family you are part of. Well, what are we letting shine? We are letting flashes of the kingdom of God shine. We're letting, we're letting little glimpses of what the kingdom looks like. You know, I heard a guy explain one time that every time Jesus did a miracle, it was him bringing the kingdom to bear in that one little spot. A guy who couldn't see could now see. That was, that was Jesus bringing the kingdom to bear on that guy's eyes. Every time we address suffering, every time we address something that's not right and we make it right, we are the, the little flashes of the kingdom of God. This is what's coming, brothers and sisters. This is what awaits us. 
The Bible tells us that Christians, if you've come to faith uh, through Christ, that you are already citizens of God's kingdom. Matthew 5 says that, we're, that we are a city. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 says that our citizenship is, of, is in heaven. Uh, in 2 Corinthians, we're called ambassadors. You know what an ambassador is? Our, our nation sends ambassadors all over the world. Do you know what an ambassador is asked to do? An ambassador is asked to go to a foreign place and to speak on behalf of the current ruler. In our case, it's a government. To speak on behalf of our government. In, in, in uh, ancient times, it was to speak on behalf of the king. So if you were an ambassador, you were in a foreign place, and yet you were, you were a, a spokesman for the king. And Paul says, that's what you and I are. If you're a Christian, you're an ambassador for the king. And Paul goes on to say, you're ambassadors, and you know what God is doing in you? He's making his appeal through you. How, how is the world going to see who God is? Part of the way is through his ambassadors. God's making his appeal through his people as we let flashes of the kingdom uh, be seen by those around us. We carry the message. We carry the priorities. We carry the lifestyle of our king. The, the message of Jesus, the message of the gospel, is not just that we believe the kingdom is coming, but that we actually become kingdom people right now. That that's actually what marks us. That, that this, this, uh, this picture in Matthew chapter 5 through 7, it's one of the pictures, that that kind of living is the way that we do life. When Jesus, in his last words to his followers in Matthew 28, we call it the Great Commission, he said, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. Observe all that I've commanded. Give attention to that. Let that mark you. That's what you should look like. That's the light that you should be shining. Those are the flashes of the kingdom that your neighbor desperately needs to see. We are not just to know that the kingdom is real, but we are to live like kingdom people. Our good works and kingdom living, those things do not make us in right relationship with God. But if we are in right relationship with God, then this is the way that we should live. That's what Jesus says. Let your light shine. Well, what do kingdom people look like? Well, I mean, that's a long, that's a long answer. Uh, you know, what, what, what do kingdom people look like? How, how should we live now? Well, there's stuff all, in, all throughout the Bible that, that instruct us on this. Uh, the, the fruit of the Spirit would be one of the lists. But, but let me try to give three groupings. First, personal holiness. Uh, to be holy means to be set apart. And the, when the Bible's using the term holy, it's typically referring to being set apart from sin. So if you think of the Sermon on the Mount and, and what Jesus is representing here, the kingdom ethics, this idea of being saturated in the character of God, having that show up in the lives of his people, this invitation, some of the things we mentioned earlier, loving your neighbor and, and treating others the way you want to be treated and, and loving your enemies and, and ha having this, this, this engagement with the world. But there's also calls to the way that we engage lust and the way that we engage greed. And in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, Jesus says something that should make us all shake in our boots. He says, you should be perfect like your Father in heaven is perfect. Whoa! That's quite the call, isn't it? It's this, it's this, it's this invitation to let the character of God saturate who we are. 
for us to actually believe that his way is good and to commit to walk in it. A second category would be to love others. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount, as I just mentioned, love your neighbor, uh, love your enemies, treat others the way that you want to be treated. The rest of the Bible echoes this. In Matthew 22, Jesus asked, what's the greatest commandment? First commandment, love the Lord your God with everything you got. Second commandment is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so this, this affirmation, that this idea of loving other people is fundamental to being a kingdom person. Galatians chapter 6 says to do good to all people. Jeremiah 29, this is in the Old Testament, but the invitation to the people of God is to pray for the city in which I've sent you. It's a city in which they were enslaved. And yet God says to his people, I want you to pray for them. Pray for your enemies. Pray for these people who are mistreating you. And so here we are, we live in Traverse City. They're not our enemies, but we should be praying for our city. We should be praying for our neighbors. We should model and demonstrate this love for others. We should have hearts of mercy towards those that are hurting. This is part of being a kingdom people. Third, a deep community. We cannot and we should not, as Jesus' followers, try to do life alone. We do not just serve and love others. We actually desperately need to invite others to serve and love us. We actually need to be part of this city that Jesus references in, in verse 14. A city set on a hill. What does it look like to be the city of God? What does it look like to be the people of God? What does it look like for us to live as a family? You know, our doctrinal statement refers to a new community. Sometimes we joke around here that when you come to faith in Christ, you are adopted into God's family. And then you get way more brothers and sisters than maybe you want. Um, and some of them might not be the most fun people to be around. And yet, Jesus says, you know what my prayer is? This is in the Gospel of John. He's like, my prayer is that you'd be one. You'd be united. That you would see the beauty of what God is doing in other people. Guess what? They're not finished products, and neither are you. What does it look like to live in deep community, in real community? So these are, these are beautiful displays of following Jesus, and they are just a sampling of, of kingdom living. But Jesus' point in the Sermon on the Mountain and other places is that it can't just be talk. It's like this invitation to be like, all right, let's get real here. Look in the mirror. What does your life look like? We are being called as people, as citizens, as ambassadors to live this out. So a good question is, is this me? Is this you? Is my, is my life marked by holiness? Is my life marked by love for others? Is my, my, my life marked by, by committing myself to the community of faith? You know, those first two, holiness and love for others, um, you know, that, that's in that same example, like the idea of sometimes you get on one ditch or, or the other, or you commit yourself to one, but maybe you don't commit yourself to the other one. Uh, a good example of this is in the book of James. Uh, there's a verse that says, where, where James says, you want to know what real religion is? Real religion is to care for the orphans and the widows. And if I could tell you how many times someone has quoted that to me, who maybe has a little bit of a, a level of skepticism towards religion, and they say, you know what? Don't, haven't you read James? James says that real religion is to care for the orphans and the widows. That's what God cares about. But do you know that that verse keeps going? And the second half of that verse says, and to keep yourself unstained or unspotted from the world? 
You know, yes, care for orphans and widows. Like, I want to do that, and I want us as a church family to do it and to continue to learn to do it and to do it better. That is a necessary response to faith in Jesus. But so is a recognition that God has a good way that he's inviting us into, this pursuit of personal holiness and obedience. These things both matter to God, and he wants us to do it in community with other Christians where we have people that we can talk to and share with and be vulnerable with. Uh, isn't it legitimate to ask? Um, you know, so is this me? Is this you? Isn't it legitimate to ask, why aren't we living this way more? Why, why don't we live this way now? You know, some, some of us in this room have been Christians for decades. Why do we struggle so much to live as kingdom people? Well, I'm glad you asked about that. <clears throat> Um, because this is really where I, I want to like, kind of focus our attention is in, in our third point. Um, sometimes, as I mentioned with the kingdom of God, sometimes things are simpler than they appear, and sometimes things are more complex than they appear. Um, the, the kingdom of God is both simpler and more complex at the very same time. Let me explain what I'm saying here. Later in the Sermon on the Mount, in, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, Jesus gives this statement, and it really seems, um, it really seems simple. In, in chapter 6, verse 33, Jesus says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And it's like, oh, okay, I'll just do that one. I'll just do, I'll do verse 33. I'll just, I'll just seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these other things fall in line. Like, I'll just, I'll just do that. Um, so here, here's what I want to say. The kingdom of God is not just a matter of content and thinking. It's also a matter of habits and wanting. This phrase from Jesus, seek first, has a, a, a tone to it, has an idea to it that actually involves a level of personal commitment this investment, this emotional investment, this prioritization of this relationship that you have with the God of heaven. But if the kingdom of God is not just a matter of content and thinking, it's also a matter of habits and wanting, then this makes it both simpler and more complex. It makes it simpler because in the end, you know, we are what we love. We, we do what we love. This is what Jesus' point is. Seek first the kingdom and everything else is dominoes. So you want to form your heart? Formation is basically automatic. Seek first the kingdom of God. It's that simple. Get, get, your, get your love right. Get your love in line. Love the right things, and you'll do the right things. Seek first the kingdom of God, and everything else is dominoes. One author put it this way. Longing leads to action. So as you, as you long for, as you prioritize, as you most value, the kingdom of God, that's going to result in you living in response to what your heart longs for. Uh, one guy said the best motivation to build a boat, you don't know what the best motivation to build a boat is? To long to be on the lake, to want to be on the lake. That'll get you out of bed in the morning. That'll get you to cut down the tree and, make the, and get the wood and, and put the boat together. If you really want to be on the lake, you'll figure out how to get the boat. Longing leads to action. And so in that sense, the kingdom is simpler. Get your loves right. How is it more complex? 
You probably know. It's more complex because our loves are developed way more subtly than we realize. Why do you love what you love? Why why do you value what you value? Maybe I should ask this. What is your answer to this question? What do you want most? In a book that we've referenced a bunch of times here, um, and I actually thought we had books for the book wall, and I, they, we, we don't, so they'll be here next week. Um, but it's a book by a guy named James K. Smith. It's called, it's, uh, the title of the book is You Are What You Love. Uh, in this book, uh, James K. Smith reflects on a scene from a movie, and the movie is called Stalker, and I've never seen the movie. But apparently, there is a scene in the film where the characters in that movie are led to a room where they will be shown exactly what they really want. So if they go in that room, what they're going to see in that room is exactly what they really want. The room reveals all. What you get is not what you think you wish for, but what you most deeply, what you most deeply wish for. Well, in the movie, the characters all hesitate. They consider going in the room, and they ask this question. What if they don't want what they think they want? Smith goes on, and he says, many of us can identify. If I ask you, a Christian, to tell me what you really want, what you most deeply long for, what you ultimately love, well, Of course, you know the right answer. You know what you ought to say. And what you state could be entirely genuine and authentic, a true expression of your intellectual conviction. But would you want to step into the room? Are you confident that what you think you love aligns with your innermost longings? What do you really love. Smith suggests that our deepest desire is the one manifested by our daily life and habits. So you could say we are what we love. You could also say we do what we love. His point is, if you want to change, your wants must change. Your desires must change because our deepest desire is the one that's manifested by our daily life and habits. And so it's, it's this, this recognition that where do we want, if we want to change, we've got to get deeper in our effort to change. Well, how do you do that? Well, I just said a minute ago, the kingdom of God is not just a matter of content and thinking. It's also a matter of habits and wanting. That means that our rhythms Our bodies, our words, our practices, they matter more than you and I realize. What do you do? How do you spend your time, your money, your energy? Where do you spend it? A good question here is, where is it easiest for you to spend it? Have you noticed that with any one of those categories, time, money, or energy, like, there are just some areas where it's really, really easy for you to spend it. Some things you can't, yeah, I mean, you can't pinch a penny out of your hand. You don't want to spend any money on that. And then other things, you can justify 
like spending a lot of money on some of those things. Why, why is it easy for you to spend your money or your time or your energy on this? Do you realize that those choices, those actions, those habits, that they're forming you? Have you taken an inventory? Have you asked the question, what is forming you? What is forming what you love? A good picture that James uh, Smith uh, invites is the idea of the heart as a compass. What does your heart think is true north? What is it that your life is actually aimed at? Comfort? Possessions? Reputation? Money? Ease? Power? Independence? Retirement? Smith wonders, have you, ever, have, you, uh, have you considered whether you might be learning to love a telos, a goal, a true north that you're not even aware of? but that nonetheless governs, by li- by, governs your life in an unconscious way. Whoa, I, there's part of me that doesn't even want to think about that. Is it possible that I'm learning to love a goal, a true north that I'm not even aware of? If you are familiar with his work, one of the suggestions that James Smith is making is that everything is forming us. Everything is an invitation to worship. When you go to the mall... The mall is a worship experience. The mall is inviting you into what, you, what, what the mall thinks you need and how you can get it. When you go to a, a stadium or to a theater, th- these, these are all worship experiences that are forming you into what actually matters. They're, they're trying to invite you into what the good life is. Now look, content still matters, but it's only part of the solution. So here's some suggestions from James Smith. He, he suggests that worship is a, is a, for a Christian, worship is top down. Habits are bottom up. Here's what he says about worship. Worship works from the top down. In worship, we don't just come to show God our devotion and give him our praise. We are called to worship because in this encounter, God remakes and molds us Top-down. Worship is the arena in which God recalibrates our hearts, reforms our desires, and rehabituates our loves. Worship isn't just something we do. It is where God does something to us. Worship is the heart of discipleship because it is the gymnasium in which God retrains our hearts. So one of the practices, one of the invitations is this idea of corporate worship. And why it matters is because worship recalibrates the compass toward what God says is true north. Towards the kingdom of God. This is part of why we commit ourselves to a Sunday liturgy. To to an order of our worship services. Why we call our worship services gospel representation. Because we want it to seep into our bones. When we gather here on Sundays, we want to walk through this story of the gospel and we want to remind ourselves of this is the story that matters. Every Sunday when you gather here, yes, yes the sermon is pointed towards, towards Christ in the gospel, but the sermon is just part of something bigger, the entire service. And whether you know it or not, 
when you attend a worship service here, here's our hope. Here's what our plan is. That every week you navigate adoration, confession, assurance of pardon, the reading and the preaching of the word of God, the Lord's table, songs of repentance, and a benediction, ascending. And every Sunday, we want to walk that together. We want it to, in a sense, become automatic. We want to think about life in that story, this recognition of the glory of God, the sinfulness and the neediness of man, the answer, the assurance of pardon, that if we've run to Christ, we have indeed been forgiven and welcomed in. We turn to the scriptures to receive from him his good gifts. We go to the table to remind ourselves that we are welcomed at the table. And then we respond in song and ascending. Every week, we want you to stand and sit and stand and sit. We, you know, we, we, we want you to physically engage. We want you to taste the bread on your tongue. We want you to taste the cup in your mouth. We want there to be a recognition that what you're doing with your body, this rehearsing of the story matters. This, this part of our service that we call confession or, or lament. You know, we've actually gotten feedback from some people that Sojourn does some weird stuff with their services. And when you probe in and you say, what's, what's weird? It's like the, 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 the songs of lament, the time of confession. And that's because a lot of people are used to happy church. You know, they're used to three happy songs and then a pick-me-up sermon. And look, I want you to be encouraged. But we also believe that Christianity is fundamentally a religion of self-critique. And that having confession and lament as a regular part of our worship service is essential if we actually want to understand the work of God in the world. Uh, Confession is a practice of Christian worship that addresses the reality that there is often a gap between what we should love and what we actually love. And some of the prayers that we have rehearsed here together own that reality. That it's like, as I walked through this week, God, I chased after lesser loves. I thought I loved you most, but man, when I look at my last seven days, I didn't live what I thought I would live. My life did not reveal what I want my true love to be. We want that to happen every week. We are, as a church, also in a journey of figuring out how to have a bigger uh, rehearsing of the story as we align ourselves more with the church calendar. So over the last number of years, we have been investing ourselves more in the season of Advent and Christmas and Christmas Tide, uh, and then uh, into Lent and and, uh, and Easter. And we, we want, as a church family, for that to be the dominant story. You know, our world pitches Mother's Day, Memorial Day, Father's Day, 4th of July. We think there's a better story. We think there's a better sequence of celebrations, of recognition, of a way to align our lives with this story that God has unfolding in the world. Christian worship is an invitation to form our hearts in love for Christ and to deform our hearts from the false loves that want to climb up on the throne. When you go to the mall, when you go to the theater, when you go to the stadium, they're all invitations to worship something else. And when we gather for worship, whether it's in our small groups or here on Sundays, there's an invitation to tear down that false formation and let Jesus make us into his people. That is what all the spiritual disciplines and the habits are designed to produce. In a sense, the habits themselves are working from the bottom up. That's the part we do. 
Do you hear James Smith say when we worship, God's doing something to us. But our habits are us proactively trying to engage God. And so there's this invitation to recognize that God is at work top down. We do our part and we are at work from the bottom up. Now, COVID maybe has mangled up a lot of your rhythms. The last 12 months have been really, really tough. And we as a church leadership team have had incredibly heart-wrenching decisions about how to gather, when to gather, what, what policies should be in place. And, and these, these things have you know, literally caused us to, to lose sleep. At the exact same time, you know, we have an invitation now to not say what if or you, know, you can't hit rewind. The question is, is, what does it look like going forward for me to rebuild habits that were good and for me to build new habits that I didn't have before so that I can experience that work from the top down as I do my part from the bottom up? Now, maybe you're thinking, those things don't really work. You know, reading the Bible, praying, fasting, living in community, going to church on Sundays for corporate worship, confessing, giving, Man, like, that stuff's more, you know, that's, that's talk, that's not action. Like, that stuff doesn't actually produce anything. Well, I have really, really good news. Jesus, our king, is the king that we all need, whether we know it or not. Listen to this. Jesus is not an absentee king. Jesus did come 2,000 years ago, and then he did ascend to the Father. But he is a warrior king who leads his people into their battles. He does not leave us to fend for ourselves. Jesus is our redeemer and our king who has come, who has conquered sin and Satan, who has inaugurated his kingdom. He has the power and the authority to make us alive and to bring us to God by grace through faith alone. But he also promises to never leave us or forsake us. He promises that through his means, through the word and through sacraments, through spiritual disciplines and habits, that the spirit will little by little, degree by degree, change us, change our desires, and change us into the image of Jesus. He promises to do it. He says he will do that to you and he will do that in you. He wants to. Get this, he died to. He's more committed to your spiritual growth than you are committed to your spiritual growth. You know, there's this illustration we've used a few times. And sometimes it's like we think about our spiritual growth as like pushing this big boulder up a hill. And it's like growing in Jesus is such hard work. And I'm, I'm trying to push this boulder up the hill and I'm trying to grow more like Jesus. You know what? Like I understand the sentiment there. But the picture of the Bible would actually be the exact opposite. That it's a guarantee the boulder is rolling down the hill. And the biggest problem we have with growing more like Jesus is our unwillingness to get out of the way. We, we keep saying, no, no, Jesus, not this part. No, Jesus, don't, don't touch this part of my life. No, I'm not going to obey you here. I'm not going to listen to you here. Jesus promises to make us into his image. And he promises it will be little by little, degree by degree. And so day by day, there's this confidence that he's actually at work in his people to turn us more and more and more into kingdom people. It's what he came for. It's what he died for. And the Bible would actually say that that is the ultimate reason to love. If we are really what we love, if that's true, then gaze upon Jesus. See him. See what he's done. See how much he loves you. See that he came to this earth and then died in your place for your sake, for your good. 
Let what he did for you and for me fill our hearts, especially as we walk through these events of Holy Week. The Bible says that the only reason we love God is because he first loved us. Can you get that? Isn't that amazing? See that and let it slowly change you into kingdom people. Then, then on that last day, when Jesus returns on that second horse, when he returns to rule and to reign in full, as king, on the throne, here on earth, forever, the Bible says we will be fully transformed. Won't be degree by degree anymore. Won't be little by little anymore. It'll be the full thing. Full, full transformation. We will be like Jesus. That's the one true north. That's the ultimate tell us. That's the ultimate goal for which we live. Life with Jesus in his kingdom. That's where we want the arrow of the compass pointed. That's the invitation for corporate worship, but for every one of your spiritual disciplines, that God would reorient the compass of our hearts and point it again to the only true north. May it be so. Let's pray. God, thanks for this uh, part of the doctrinal statement, this picture of a kingdom rich and deep and full, a kingdom that's here in part, that we're invited to be part of, where we're invited to be kingdom people, where we let little flashes of your kingdom shine out, where we reveal what it is to be, uh, to be shaped by you, to be formed by you, what love for you actually does to a person. And so God, is we have neighbors and coworkers and family members. We have people who uh, are your people, who have come to faith in Christ, those who have not yet. God, would you, would you help us in the day-by-day walk of becoming a little bit more like Jesus, of that, of that journey towards becoming kingdom people? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.